Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, life after Boris Johnson. What would the UK be like if the Prime Minister was brought down by his own party? A prospect that seems increasingly likely. We'll be examining that question and doing more crystal ball gazing into 2022 with Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu and Byline Times co-founder and executive editor Peter Jukes. Before we get cracking, I'd like to wish you a happy new year and just remind you that the Byline Times doesn't have wealthy backers or corporate interests to sustain it. We rely for income on people like you taking out subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. Your subs also help fund Byline TV, this podcast and our fantastic newsbreaking website, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. Just go to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Now, as 2021 came to a close, details of parties at Downing Street, while the rest of the country was in lockdown, threatened to engulf Boris Johnson. His premiership appeared to be tottering. He has kept his job, for now, but with his popularity plummeting, it's questionable how much longer he'll survive. So how would Britain look with a different Conservative Prime Minister? I brought together Peter Jukes and Hardeep Matharu to assess the political prospects for 2022 and to answer that vexed question. Yeah, this question, Adrian, has obsessed both myself and Hardeep, particularly towards the end of last year as we sort of saw that with multiple allegations of you know breaking lockdown and more allegations of sleaze and payments for wallpaper and flats that though Johnson may be on the ropes, it was important to look at the forces behind him because he could go and they could remain. Uh, and that came the priority really, didn't it, Hardeep, with our December edition of the newspaper? Yes, exactly. So it's definitely going to be an interesting year. We're going into it with the expectation that Boris Johnson probably won't be prime minister this time next year. It's sort of widely thought that he won't be able to survive not only mainstream media commentators, his own MPs, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak, apparently on manoeuvres already. And interestingly, there's already a lot more press coverage about Liz Truss, for example, coming through. And we've still got these ongoing coronavirus considerations, which might cause more problems for Johnson from the right of his party. So so it's kind of, I mean, very likely that he probably will be pushed out at some point when his popularity becomes a complete liability for the Conservative Party. But as Peter was saying, I think it's really important, and this is what we tried to focus on in the December print edition, that regardless of him staying or going or how long he lasts or the manner in which he's ousted, the sort of vote leave apparatus, which was at the heart of the Brexit vote, is being carried all the way through into government, you know, and it's seeping into our institutions. There is quite a right-wing agenda, which many people would associate with not traditional conservatism, which has been advanced under Johnson. And there are sort of far-reaching consequences. So I think last year, a lot of the focus in some ways was the government waging these so-called culture wars and looking at this, all this symbolism around the flag and what it is to be British and sort of all that stuff. And on multiple fronts, that hasn't really worked. And so I think what we're going to see now is something much more insidious, much more concerning. That's actually been going on all along anyway, which is 
the law and the processes of government being used in a way which is creating a more hostile environment that very populist conservatives don't like and sort of creating an environment which is favourable to things they do like, which is all the stuff we've seen with regards to the crony contracts, government appointments, civil service positions being filled with people favourable to a quite right-wing agenda of the Conservative Party. So all of the forces that propel Boris Johnson, including the establishment media and its interest in keeping in place a prime minister, which is, is merged with the, you know, the merging of the media and the political class, all of these factors are still going to be there, regardless of whether Boris Johnson leaves in six months or five months or two. You know, so there's a wider thing here about what conservatism has become and whether we're going to continue down that route or if the party opts to go back to something it had which was sort of more traditional middle England conservatism uh, through someone like Jeremy Hunt so there are definitely divisions within the conservative party there always have been and they're still there but I think what's concerning is that this Johnson vote leave government seems to be in its stride but as Peter always says those things can change really quickly. So I don't know if you've got a different opinion on that, Peter, that these things are becoming embedded, but they may turn around quite quickly if the Conservatives decide to go back to something that's more traditionally conservative. I think it's very dynamic. I mean, people often accuse me of kind of false optimism about, for example, when we first started covering crony contracts, it's not changing the polls. Well, it takes a long time like an oil tanker to change public opinion. And once it's turned, it's turned. And I think we're seeing that with Boris Johnson. It will be impossible. That's why they will need to get rid of him to turn around. All those attributes, jokey, class, all those things that appeal to people, especially behind the red wall, can pull very, very quickly if it's incompetent, it's selfish, it's venal and arrogant. And I think, so therefore, you know, that dynamic, it took a long time to build up, but once it happened, it happened very quickly. I think the same could be true for the Conservative Party in that, and this is putting aside Hardy's very fair point about their changes in law and particularly what they're doing, like voter ID registration, electoral commission. You know, they still could, like America, try, try to steal the election. But the idea that they could do yet again as they have done with Margaret Thatcher in 1990, put in, there was an election, they got John Major. John Major, it felt like a new beginning, so he got re-elected by the public. But effectively, the Conservative Party chose the Prime Minister in 1990. It happened again in 2016 with Theresa May, when David Cameron resigned. Basically, the Conservative Party chose the Prime Minister. And of course, it happened again in 2019, the Conservative Party chose the Prime Minister. Now, the idea that could happen again in 2022 or 2023 before a general election, I think the public will begin to be wary of that. I don't think there is a unifying figure, a kind of coalition, a red wall coalition around Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. I just, or even Jeremy Hunt, I don't see that they have a candidate who can match Johnson in terms of visibility, affability. Everybody has a feeling about Boris Johnson and most people's until recently was, well, he seems quite educated, he seems fun and he has funny hair. None of those characters have that. So I think there are deeper problems than we can imagine. But just to that point of the change of the law, that's the problem. 
if they're desperate in a corner, Hardeep, will they go further and faster with, you know, the ability? I mean, the Home Office is a source of a lot of this darkness and very right-wing authoritarian uh, law changes about the rights to protest, about rescinding citizenship on the whim of the Home Secretary, that your citizenship, I mean, no country in the world allows that. And that's the problem is they panic. Will they retreat or will they sort of try to go further, faster? And the danger is if they're caught in a corner, it's not that they retreat, but they try to go further and faster. And amongst those issues that you've touched on there, you think of the nationality and borders bill, which criminalises those seeking sanctuary in this country, the policing bill, which curtails the right to protest, the introduction of voter ID that you've mentioned as well, the borders bill, which gives the Home Secretary the right to take away citizenship without notice, particularly for those who have been naturalised. These are policies of which there has been very little pushback from the Conservative Party as a whole. So you think, well, whoever's going to be Prime Minister, these will still be government bills, government acts of Parliament. Yes, exactly, Adrian. I think it's really interesting, isn't it, looking back so many years now from the the EU referendum in 2016. And even those of us who like to think we're engaged and informed, how could any of us have known when that referendum happened exactly what it would usher in? You know, here we are down the line, as you say, looking at the Home Secretary giving herself the ability to take away citizenship from British people without the need to notify them. I mean, it's become more and more populist, authoritarian, very right-wing, you know, very extreme. And I think that's the problem. That's the broader project of this sort of vote-leave, Brexit-driven conservatism, for which Johnson is the current front man and kind of leader of this revolution. It's quite an established agenda it's sometimes tempting to think that Brexit was just this very chaotic thing that Boris Johnson and Michael Gove didn't think they were going to win. You know, we all remember that morning after the vote and they were giving that press conference and they had these very, very uh, stony looks on their faces as if they couldn't believe what happened and what they got themselves into, let alone the country. So it's tempting to see it all. It's very chaotic and it's just sort of happened. Then the coronavirus came along and Johnson's had to deal with that. But actually behind this, there is an agenda. You know, there are certain factions within the Conservative Party. As you say, many of them haven't challenged any of these attempts to change the law. The Nationality and Borders Bill is now in the, in the House of Lords. and It was not challenged in its current form with this citizenship amendment or addition in Parliament. So there are various factions with certain ideologies that are very kind of right-wing, quite extreme. And that is not just about Boris Johnson. And neither is that the result of something chaotic. It's for years. There's, there've been Dominic Cummings and certain people that have wanted to take the Conservative Party and therefore the country in a certain direction. And so I think it's really important that as we come back into a new year and Parliament starts up again, and inevitably I think there'll be more coverage around the Downing Street Christmas parties. We've got a few inquiries that are due to report back around around some of that stuff. Um, it's really important that it doesn't just all become about Boris Johnson and his credibility and his lack of integrity, because the project that he happens to be a front man for is still in place. And 
It's not something chaotic. It's quite a concerning, quite extreme agenda. And we're seeing parts of that now. But if we're not kind of got our eyes open for it, as you say, another prime minister will come into place and just be the new figurehead for it. This is the year when business for the first time will have to deal with the additional regulations associated with dealing with the European Union, facing the barrage of red tape that they were promised would actually disappear as a result of Brexit. Once the reality of Brexit starts to play out in the next 12 months, as it has done to an extent in the past 12 months, do you think that's likely to shift the electoral needle? I think three things which are related to Brexit will start to happen this summer, which would cause all of us concern. But on the Brexit issue, we've seen an erosion of support for Brexit in the polls in the last year. And we've seen, as we've documented, supply chain problems, problems with sewage treatment, problems with roaming charges, problems with energy prices. Some of these are wide world, the supply chain issues across the world, thanks to coronavirus mainly, but they are acute and they are much worse here. We sent you know, by live TV, it's been to Germany where they don't have empty shells or panics over petrol. So that will cause inflation because the only way the extra, you know, I have the extraordinary stories, you know, a, a customer certificate would just be passed through in a, an hour, now takes 20 triplicate forms and four or five days. I mean, I personally had supply issues from uh, other stuff coming from Europe, which take weeks instead of days. Well, either those businesses will fade, will go completely import-export businesses with our major trading partner, the EU, or they'll pass on price rises to the customer. We're already seeing that with energy costs, which have gone up across Europe, but particularly since we're no longer in this joint trading block with the rest of the EU for the UK. So energy prices, which pass on to everybody, We're already seeing a jump of inflation. At the same time, this particular government, because of the way they've thrown out money, you could say to uh, cronies over the coronavirus, is putting up taxes. The biggest tax hike, I think, for the average citizen for 30 years, I believe, with the national insurance hike. That will happen at the same time. And meanwhile, a cut in that boost for universal benefit. One of the things I learned as a kid of the 60s and 70s and seeing governments fall and come and go, Wilson and Heath, was the pound in your pocket. The idea that really voters, it's the economy, stupid. For some reason, since 2008, I mean, a lot of people have suffered. A lot of poverty and austerity has grown. But for the bulk of the population, with cheap mortgages and interest rates at zero, we kind of floated above the financial crises of the last decade or so or seem to have done, though obviously I think kids and people in their 20s have paid for it with student loans and not be able to afford to get property. I wonder whether that's going to be quite acute by the spring. You'll get people really feeling poorer. And unlike the last two years or so, you won't be able to blame that on the pandemic. By the summer, of course, we just don't know whether COVID will be starting to fade out, whether there will be yet another variant that might take us towards lockdown. It's clearly an an uncertain situation. By then, we'll have the public inquiry underway, though, into COVID. And Michael Mansfield's People's COVID Inquiry, which we reported about extensively here on the podcast, 
argue that Boris Johnson at least has a case to answer and some of his ministers for misconduct in public office over their handling of COVID. Is it possible that in the months ahead that the reality of what happened during COVID could yet come back to haunt Johnson? It's hard to predict, obviously, isn't it, what will happen with the virus and any new variants. And it's quite likely that there will be another variant, especially because we haven't we haven't managed to eradicate coronavirus. It's, it's in free circulation around the world, and therefore it's likely that more variants will emerge. My opinion is that a government led by Johnson, or certainly this sort of extreme vote leave right wing sort of populist government, just won't introduce sort of restrictions or protections, as people are saying we should now call them, because it has no moral authority to do so. I think that comes down to not only what we've seen with these stories about the lockdown Christmas parties in Downing Street, stories all over the place about people in government not adhering to the rules in different ways, but as you say, this inquiry that's going to be starting, I think it will be very bad for Boris Johnson. Um, Ultimately, I think (laughs) there's been a calculation that he probably won't be prime minister for much longer after it gets underway in reporting anyway. But the two things combined, I think he's lost moral authority to say that he can handle the virus. The pandemic is sort of ongoing. I think it will become just something that people see as part of their lives. But I think there's still the danger that measures that would help stop the spread and people who could be advised to sort of protect others, that that those messages won't be coming really from the government anymore, just because it has no authority to do that. There's no moral authority left to do that, which I think is, is really concerning. Most people have taken it upon themselves to lock themselves away. London, I live in the central London, it's extremely quiet. People are not taking the risk. So I think there is a certain perception that the government isn't necessarily the one to look to if you want to know how to live your life during the pandemic. And I think that the COVID inquiry will just merely back that up. I agree with Hardy, but I think the interesting thing, as it did in America in the year of the election of 2020, the pandemic and our response to it brings the fore a huge ideological gulf between a kind of libertarian individual survivalism, as we see in the ERG, the right-wing fraction, which was originally about Brexit and now seems to be focused on coronavirus around Steve Baker. You know, their idea is kind of let it rip, herd immunity, also individuals take responsibility for themselves, and that anything else, wearing a mask, any lockdown or vaccine passes to get to venues, is oppression. Now, we've, we've heard this ideology. Thatcher iterated it a bit, didn't she? There's no such thing as society, only individuals and families, though she claims she was misquoted. In a pandemic, that the collective provision, the sense we're all in it together, as somebody once famously said, I think David Cameron, over the economic crisis, the sense that, you know, if you do go off and just do your own thing, you know, no man is an island, no woman is an island, that you will go and infect somebody else or you will mute, the virus will mutate in your body and become more deadly. In a way, that split has never been more apparent within the Conservative Party to some extent, because you can see big splits in that, the Conservative Party, the kind of pro-science group, the more conservative with a small c and the sort of more fanatical libertarian group. And uh, particularly in this country, 
focus around that kind of icon of Britishness to a certain extent, one of the icons, which is the NHS. And I think that Johnson's going to fall the wrong side of that increasingly. And that's the thing about lockdown parties. They struck home more than crony contracts over, you know, coronavirus or PPE, because there's individual behavior that us and them, we're all, you know, we couldn't go to funerals. Everybody's got a story about lockdown last Christmas before last, you know, and then being alone and, and we suffered and they didn't. And that's where labor, I think, though it seems boring and staid and stammer, at least he seems to have some probity and his boringness, that sense he's a bit constrained. He can't really speak from the heart with the authenticity of somebody like Johnson or as Trump famously did, because he's considered and he's kind of representing a group. I think that maybe the pandemic is the last gasp, I'm hoping, of Anglo-American populism. And 2022, can we look at the evidence of that, that collective provision, joint responsibility is safer for us all? And one we're having one of the worst is probably changed now by this time, you know, until some of the worst coronavirus death tolls per capita in the developed world, that you know, the British people are quite sage and sensible. They do care for each other and they will learn, even if they don't follow this public inquiry in huge detail, they will somehow look at the errors and go, you know, we're to be sound cliche, but we're better off together than sort of, you know, hanging alone. When this government has been threatened, generally it has resorted to culture war, something that have been documented both on this podcast and in the Byline Times newspaper and online and so on. There was another outbreak of that only last week when I was approached by the Jeremy Vine show on Radio 2 to talk about comments around cancel culture. And however much we might bemoan that, there are triggers which are very easily pressed to distract us by the government's friends in mainstream media around issues of wokeness and so on. That's not going to disappear in 2022, is it? Mm, It'll be interesting to see how it evolves, Adrian, because I think it will. I think it will evolve and adapt. And it'll be interesting to see how that language continues, um, how it becomes weaponized potentially in new ways. Peter and I, our conclusion on the culture wars for 2021 was that on several fronts, the government tried to advance something which didn't work ultimately when it hit reality. And I think the most powerful example of that was what happened with Euro 2020 when Priti Patel and Prime Minister both refused to condemn people who were booing the England players who were taking the knee as a sign of, you know, solidarity to eradicate racism and s- structural inequality. And Priti Patel had even gone on GB News and said it was gesture politics. And of course, as we know, after England got to the final, got all the way to the final, but lost on penalties, the three players um, who took the penalties, who happened to be black, received a lot of racist abuse. And when Priti Patel joined in on Twitter saying how awful that was, it was Tyrone Mings, one of their fellow England players, who said, you have no right to do that because it's part of what you've been saying about gesture politics and all of these culture wars you're whipping up is part of the problem. 
So that was like a very significant moment, I think. It showed the government that it's not as powerful as it would like to think it is in realms outside of what it knows, i.e. wider culture, popular entertainment, the generations that are now coming up who are much more aware of these things. But it seems to be a preoccupation, this notion of cancel culture with certain sections, I would say, of of the media, the establishment media of certain commentators. I always think it's amazing that Andrew Neal seems to spend a lot of his time lamenting the fact that GB News was like the worst thing that ever happened to him. And now there are apparently all these rumours that he's trying to get back into the BBC. And I, I always think it's amazing that a lot of cancel culture seems to come down to these very privileged white middle class men who have worked their whole lives in the establishment in one form or another, just moving between different positions within that same establishment and then on their way, them and others, saying that they're the ones who aren't being given platforms, aren't being listened to or can't say what they want. It's a very selective form of the use of this notion of cancel culture. But it will be interesting. I mean, as Peter said, this sort of free freedom and libertarian notion, which sits at the heart of a certain faction of the Conservative Party, is still very much going. So I think the culture wars this year will sort of pivot a bit more into, especially around coronavirus as well, about wider narratives around freedom. We will be hearing more about cancel culture, I think. In terms of wokeness, and history. And I don't know, I don't know how much further the government can really push that stuff. I mean, what do you think, Peter? Do you think that was shown that it just doesn't have much of a shelf life? It's funny, isn't it? I mean, we have a good book edited by you coming out, Woke Law, in March, which is sort of uh, Byline Times essays, not just on culture, but the longer reads. And I always say, I'd say to you, and I'd say to football fans like uh, Adrian, it was 3-0 in the culture wars last year. The first, I think, own goal by the government was the Sewell Report on race, race and inequality, which landed with a resounding thud of hilarity and really was disregarded and sort of seemed to be ridiculous. We have their Euro 2020s. I think the collapse, not the collapse, but the, the failure of GB News to really you know, change the media landscape is another one. And like you, Huddy, I just noticed... People like Piers Morgan, who has a platform now with Murdoch, has a huge Twitter following, writes to the Daily Mail saying, I'm being cancelled. I mean, you know, it's just one of the most ridiculous things that when so many people aren't heard, that there is a group of very privileged people who will not find anybody contesting. You're not silencing somebody by contesting what they say. They're being cancelled. Oh, you disagree with me. You're trying to silence me. No, I'm actually having... A debate with you. I think one big factor I think we should take into consideration is the US, because it's quite clear to me that was a major setback for Johnson, or at least large elements around his government, that Trump failed to mm. get a second term. And Biden's obviously, you know, well-known position on the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland is, you know, he's called Boris Johnson a physical, emotional clone of Trump. You know, there are definite connections between Trump campaign and people around Johnson. What happens in the midterms? Because the Republicans in America, which is in a way what you're saying, you know, the British, the element of the British Conservative Party are modelling themselves. They get money from, you know, we track the dark money come from U.S think tanks and so donors into British politics. 
is they think they might get great result in the midterms. And, you know, by that point, they're due this November midterm elections for third, I think, of Senate and House seats happens all the time, two years into presidency. And they're going around doing what you're talking about. They're going around changing the law, voter registration, redistricting. They're making it very, very difficult for people of colour or people who might vote Democrat to vote. So they are fighting like very hard for this. The whole emphasis on free speech, on cancel culture, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, a lot of this cultural Marxism is imported from the US right. And I think there's an element of the Conservative Party hoping there's another hurrah for that in the US, which enables them here. But the caveat is, if that doesn't happen, all their divide and rule wars, all their sort of wedge issues hit the Conservative Party. They built a coalition, a kind of libertarian coalition, but also quite a religious coalition, people who are very uncomfortable with same-sex marriage and things like that, working together with people who don't care about that but want sort of free deregulated economy for agricultural products or don't care about climate change. They built this coalition, which was successful, the outright coalition in 2016. I'd say similar stuff happened here as happened in the U.S., but they're held together by success. In failures, you've seen, I think, with Dominic Cummings, you know, they fight like rats in a sack. And it's a very critical year for them to hold that coalition, to stop it falling apart. Russia plays a part in this, as we've seen in terms they're seen, they're liked by US Republicans, they're liked by members of the Conservative Party. If something happens in Ukraine, if that polarizes further, that'll be problematic. And then I think everything falls apart. For them, because it is built on success and is built on money. You know, if you're no longer getting those donors coming, they're no longer getting whatever favors they expect in return for giving the Conservative Party a million pounds. They abandon you, and because they, you know, donors are like that, they'll start supporting Starmer if they think he can win. And I just say that you know it is all up for grabs, because that's where the role of journalists like you know yourself and Adrian and Byline Times, we can make a real difference, because a lot of people are unaware of these things until they're exposed by journalism. Credit to the Mirror and ITV. We wouldn't probably, though I think Johnson's popularity was going anyway, we wouldn't be having this conversation about him going so quickly if it hadn't been for the role of Pippa Career and ITV Paul Brand or whatever, exposing the pictures, the videos of talking about breaking lockdown. That is where information, where journalism can really change the political temperature. And through all these dark two half years of byline times, you know, we had our front page, Goodbye Little Britain, when Boris Johnson entered number 10. Well, you know, people, when they're told what's really going on, will rebel and they won't tolerate it. One thing I just want to add, looking at this, you know, so-called cultural wars and these issues of weaponization of terms like freedom and identity and all this sort of thing. Another thing that we will be doing some more work on on Byline Times, but also needs to be looked at because it's part of this sort of, I would say, wider agenda, wider structural architecture that this current Conservative Party has erected, is this notion that 
certain societal ills, such as racism, such as structural discrimination in Britain, uh, do not exist because we now have people of colour in the cabinet, such as Preeti Patel, such as Sajid Javid, such as Rishi Sunak. We could even have a potential successor to Johnson, who may be a person of colour. It's very, very interesting. Peter and I have written about this at the end of last year, where we sort of looked at something we've talked about before, Adrian, on the podcast, Enoch Powell, you know, in the long shadow of him and his sort of seminal speech and attitude that has set the groundwork in many ways for race relations and race discussions in this country, and st- I think still continues to. So we, ha- we had a look at that and to what extent that you can still see that or the resurrection of that in the current government through the kind of agendas that Boris Johnson and Priti Patel are advancing around these issues, people coming into the country, the politics of othering. And the response was, was really quite uh, <laughs> eye-opening in a way, because it confirmed something that we've sort of thought about intellectually, but hadn't necessarily seen pragmatically until then, which is the the response from a certain section of the readership of that article was sort of essentially, you guys must be must be mad because there are a lot of people of colour in the cabinet. How on earth can you say that we've reached a point where Enoch Powell should be in the conversation again? It was very, very, very telling. So I think behind all of this war on woke and cancel culture and discussions about freedom, there are some very complicated and sort of dangerous narratives and methods that are being advanced, really, to roll back progress in Britain. And I think part of our job also, Peter, I think you'll agree, is trying to deconstruct what exactly those sort of things are, so people can understand them in a way that's simple. People look at the cabinet and say, well, quite diverse. It's the most diverse we've ever had. What are you talking about when you mention Enoch Powell? I understand that. But it's looking at how we can use our journalism in a way that sort of shines a light on that quite complex dynamic. Heidi, I mean, you've been sort of opened my eyes a lot to this, and it's been a brilliant stream of work from you, right back from one of those early articles about why your Punjabi parents, via you know, who came to this country via Kenya from mm. uh, India, voted for Brexit. And I think there are two strands to this. One is the excellent work on empires that, unlike America, where civil rights and the sort of anti-racism movement there goes back to slavery. We have a history of empire. And what do we do in empire? We co-opt, you know, we co-opt leaders in our colonies of color to run our empire for us, to become half in, half out. And so our experience of, oh, there's a person of color in this position, therefore everything's fine, is, you know, is very different. I don't think our discussions are as developed as they are in the US. You know, US after right back to Clarence Thomas, you remember the Supreme Court judge, conservative black judge, she was elected to the Supreme Court with some controversy over allegations of sort of, you know, sexual inappropriateness. Uh, Americans got, and the OJ trial can get very much the idea that a person doesn't represent a system that you can have anecdotal evidence of people rising up the tree and being successful, getting the cabinet. That doesn't mean there isn't, as you always put it, structural racism going on, in which we, Jonathan Porter's made the point about the sewer report. 
He never even looked at structural racism, made no assessment of it, employment prospects of healthcare outcomes, mental health, or any of those things where you could look at the population and go, oh, you know, actually this group, for because of whatever their ethnic background, seemed to suffer more. Instead, it just went down the anecdotal, the Caribbean experience, look at all these, you know, famous people of colour. And I think that conversation, wherever it goes, and it can be tricky, because it is tricky to say someone like Priti Patel, that could she be enacting racist policies? Well, I think, of course, I mean, to me, and I'm not a person of colour, that I, Armenian heritage, it is racist to assume that somebody just because of their ethnic background could not be racist themselves, or towards certain groups, and we see it. In India, you know, Modi is running an Islamophobic campaign a lot of the time. And I think that's because we are backward, because there has been so much cancel culture of people of colour, they're not allowed to speak. And so we hear about what white people think about racism and whether it's over or not, which is absurd, isn't it? Like, you know, Piers Morgan said, oh, well, I don't think I'm racist. Well, it's not you who would even know if you were. You know, you're not the victim of these things. And maybe the good side of these culture wars is that we are opening up that proper conversation that, you know, individuals do not make a policy, individuals do not make a system. And there have been many advances in this country, which I completely celebrate, but I can see that some any further is uh, attacking their white privilege, which is always a problem with power. People hate to share it. Peter Jukes and Hardeep Matharu. And you can read much more from both of them in our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. Subscriptions to that pay for this podcast as well. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. You won't regret it. And just a special word of thanks from me to all the people who share details of this podcast on social media. We don't have a marketing budget, so every like on Facebook, every retweet really does make a difference. So cheers. And thanks also to Harvey White, who does so much of the production legwork for this podcast behind the scenes. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.